Well, good morning. It's a privilege to present God's Word to you this especially over the next 12 sessions where we're going to be examining biblical prayers and how to pray effectively. Whether you're new to the faith or having been a believer for an extended period of time, we can always refine our prayer life and our devotion to the Lord. And what better way to do that than looking at some of the models and patterns of prayer that we have in Scripture? And as I prayerfully considered where do we begin, you couldn't ask for a better model than that which our Lord gives in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, pray then in this way. So that in this prayer, our Lord is giving us a pattern or a template. Notice our Lord did not intend for this to merely be prayed by rote, but rather it serves as a guide for us to structure our own prayers. And so we're going to be going through this prayer, looking at the various aspects so that you and I can then refine and uh, enhance our prayer life because I don't know about you but I've literally been spending weeks studying this passage in anticipation of our day together and it's already revolutionized my own prayer life because there were elements in here that I discovered are totally missing in my regular approach to the Lord in prayer so hopefully you will find it as challenging as well notice that the first two verses really begin with adjusting our perspective. Everyone in this room is busy. Often when we go to prayer time, our mind is crowded with a lot of thoughts and agendas. And I think it's significant that our Lord's Prayer begins by some items that begin to shift our focus and enable us to embrace the proper mindset to go to the Lord in prayer. And of course, the beauty of this prayer is my guess is most, if not all of us, have this prayer memorized. So it's a ready template and pattern for us to employ in our own prayer time. The prayer begins, as you know, with the words, Our Father. And right out of the chute, we're introduced to something revolutionary. Old Testament saints did not refer to God as Father. It's doubtful that Daniel or Moses or any of the great warriors of prayer in the Old Testament use that particular term. If you look at the Old Testament, the word Father was used primarily with regard to the nation as a whole in relation to God, but no individual would have dared claim that kind of relationship to our God. Whereas our Lord says that we have a privilege to call God our Father, and that is an exclusive privilege. Jesus will make it very clear in his earthly ministry that no one comes to the Father except through Christ. And secondly, it's a close relationship. God as Father sets the standard for what true fatherhood looks like. That fatherhood as one who loves, who cares, who provides, who's responsible for the well-being of his children, who guides on the right path, who provides, protects, and even disciplines are all bound up in the idea of God as Father. Now, Satan would love to do nothing more than to undermine our effectiveness in prayer. And that's why this perspective is so important, because on the one hand, 
we need to grab hold of the fact that when we go to the Lord in prayer, we're doing something that those who are not children of God cannot do. This is a privilege that is unique to those who have a relationship with the Father by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, notice that the world in which we live will try to diminish that privilege by saying everybody has access to God. That no matter what your faith, no matter what your religion, God hears all prayer. And while in one sense that's true, God is omniscient, he hears every prayer, he has only committed himself to responding and answering the prayers of his own children. It's like a neighbor's child comes running over to you and asks for something. In grace and in kindness, you may consent, but if your own child comes, now there's an obligation, now there's a responsibility. And the scripture is very clear that we have a very unique access to our Heavenly Father. And secondly, that our Heavenly Father loves and cares for us. And this is where everybody's story in this room is different. I'm sure if we took time to talk about what our earthly fathers would like, we would find as many different stories as there are people in this room. And therefore, some of you may have some baggage with regard to what it means when we call God Father. You may have had a father that was abusive or absent, a father who was a good provider, but not really close to you. Some of you may have had a wonderful father, but no matter how wonderful, they are not as perfect as our Heavenly Father. So that notice right out of the chute, we need to transform our thinking by defining what God as Father means is wholly informed by Scripture as the one who loves, who provides, who cares for, and is vitally interested in the, our well-being. Now, any comments, observations before we go on to the next aspect of our perspective, the, first, the second aspect of our Lord's perspective? Just real quick, you've got the serpent up there, and it, it really reminds me of the whole tact of Satan, which is to say, did God really say this? Is he really this? Always question who God is. Always question exactly. what's best in mind for you. And it's just so, so perfect. That's how we've been torn away from who he is. Exactly. Back to the scripture to realize we really Exactly. Thanks for sharing that. And that's why I use this graphic here, because we live in a world that subtly seeks to move us from recognizing the privilege and the closeness that we have in prayer. The, Satan is the prince of this world, and he works through the, the world and the flesh to lead us away from the power of prayer. Secondly, we pray who art in heaven. Now we pause long enough to reflect on the fact that that says at least two things about God. First of all, he sees everything and he knows everything. There's nothing hidden, nothing that will catch him off guard. He's in a position of absolute omniscience and omnipresence. Secondly, oops, he is sovereign over everything. Often what drives us to prayer 
is a feeling of helplessness. It can be the physical illnesses that we talked about this morning. It can be a financial crisis. It can be a job situation. But whatever is driving us to prayer, the burdens we're carrying, we now pause to reflect on the fact that here's a person who is completely in control. And this is where your prayer life sort of takes a deep breath and a calm enters your spirit because now we know that we're coming before a God who is in a position that not only cares as Father, but is supremely in control of the circumstances of our life. So that he knows everything, he's in control. And again, Satan would love for us to be so consumed with our anxiety that oddly enough, it actually keeps us from praying. How often do you find a brother and sister in Christ who's consumed with the cares that engulf them, very real problems, and yet when you ask them, have you prayed about this, they give you this blank look like, it never even crossed my mind. We need to allow the pressures of our life to push us toward God, not come between us and the one who can intervene on our behalf. Third, we pray, hallowed be your name. Now the word hallowed basically means set apart. And God is set apart in two ways. First of all, he is what is called transcendent. He's set apart from creation. He is absolutely unique in his being. By referring to the name of God, we're referring to everything that God has revealed himself to be. And so we recognize that God is absolutely set apart from creation, supreme in splendor, in majesty, in glory, and in power. And secondly, he is set apart from sin. He is absolutely morally pure. And as a result, when we go to God in prayer, we never have to worry that he will give us anything less than the very best. As holy, as morally pure, we know that whatever answer, whether yes or no or something different, that God will always give us that which is morally excellent, valuable, and beneficial. And again, Satan loves to construct a worldview that says, I am a good person, and what ought to be controlling our minds and hearts is what's going on in this world. As a matter of fact, <laughs> this worked out better than I thought. Some of you can see the little circle that says God up there in the upper left-hand corner. Satan would love nothing more than to remove God totally from the frame or to shrink him in size so that he's very small and very irrelevant to what's going on. Sadly, there's a lot of people in this world who live their lives where God is small and distant and what consumes their time and interest is what's going on in this world and basically view themselves as a good person. Now, I love playing with PowerPoint. You've probably figured that out. Notice the scriptures get rid of that worldview and magnify the Lord. When the world, scripture talks about magnifying the Lord, 
It means return him to his full splendor. And even this doesn't do justice. We really need to be in an IMAX or something where, where it becomes so big that there's this sense of, wow. I mean, and even that wouldn't do it because if we really grasped the majesty of our God, it would drive us to our knees in adoration of his splendor. Furthermore, no matter how good we are, in comparison to the holiness of our God, we would see ourselves as sinners. That was Isaiah's conclusion in Isaiah chapter six. So that notice as we go to prayer, again, our perspective is being expanded where God is magnified to full size in all of his glory and all of his majesty. Now let's pause there for a moment. Any comments, observations, questions before we move on to the next aspect? Yes. You're saying about how God is very, how Satan is shrinking, trying to shrink God. You know, it's amazing how I've gone to two weddings this year and there was no prayer, no mention of God at all. That's tragic. How tragic is that? So bad. Entering into marriage is scary enough to do it without asking God's help would be totally terrifying. And yet that's the world in which we live, where people go through their entire day and God is very small and very remote if he is out there at all. And that's where the Lord's Prayer serves as a remarkable template because now he's brought right back to the center of our existence as the one to whom we're going to in prayer. Any other comments, observations? Yes. I think the Bible says one time, sanctify Christ in your heart as Lord. That means to set him apart as Lord in your heart. Absolutely. Excellent. Set the Lord apart in your heart. And we live in a world that wants to shrink, make God distant and small. Notice the perspective that when we go to prayer, we're sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts. We're returning him to the full size transcendent being that he is. Thy kingdom come. In this petition, I think we have a link between the previous one and the next one. First of all, when we pray thy kingdom come, I think we're praying that our Lord return and establish his earthly kingdom. We're asking Christ to intervene in human history and to establish the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament, the full expression of his rule and reign. By praying this, we recognize that things are not now on earth the way they should be. Do I hear an amen to that one? And the only solution is ultimately this one, that when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, this world will be the way that God intended for it to be all along. It also means that we are eager for his return. One of my favorite subjects to teach in college was eschatology. And it's amazing to me when you ask a believer in Christ, you know, uh, are you excited about Christ's return or Christ could return today? And they look at you and they say something like, I hope not, or something like that. The eagerness is gone. The anticipation is gone that somehow Something in this world has displaced the eager enthusiasm that you and I, as believers in Christ, the yearning that we should possess for Christ to return. Yeah, Tim. 
I think the other thing is that uh, we're, we're thinking in terms of, of the progression of time, but the other side of this, what I see is the conversion of the heart, because the kingdom does enter your heart uh, as a result of your acceptance of, of, of God for who he is. And so the thing is, is that um, this is just, you know, you, your, your heart has to be ready, otherwise you're not gonna appreciate what comes, what is made manifest in the, in the physical world. Exactly. And I think that's caught up in the next petition too, where it says, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But notice how this adds perspective to our prayer life, that we're basically praying for God to consummate his plan for human history. Notice the strategic perspective importance here. Often when we go to prayer, we're, we've got all these plans, all these requests that we're bringing to God, and this pauses our progress long enough to say, there's a bigger plan, there's a bigger agenda, and a more important agenda, and I need to make sure that my plans are submitted and supportive of this overall plan. So that Christ's return, the judgment seat of Christ, where our works will be evaluated and rewards bestowed, and Christ's earthly kingdom adds perspective. We focus on his plan rather than ours, and we adjust the temporal on the basis of the eternal. Satan doesn't like this. And so what he does is confuse eschatology. Have you ever wondered why there is so much debate and division that most pastors are afraid to talk about future events? Satan loves that. Because when he succeeds, now all there is to talk about is the here and now. We've lost the eternal dimension of our lives on this earth. And to the degree that he successfully does that, now there is no urgency, there is no vision, there is no criterion for adjusting our prayer life on the basis of what God is in the process of doing. I grew up in a church that had two conferences in the year, fall missions conference, because winning the loss to faith in Jesus Christ is central to our great commission. Every spring we had a prophecy conference. Why? Because allowing this perspective to permeate on a regular basis then drives our prayer life and our decision-making in a way that makes a difference for the cause of Christ. Okay, any questions, comments on this aspect of the prayer? The other thing too is there's a lot of people that, that use Christ's return as a scapegoat to not uh, fulfill their own destinies in their own lives. Excellent. Yeah, in other words, any doctrine can be abused one direction or another. And certainly there are people who use eschatology to promote sensationalism of one kind or another, or as an easy excuse to, you know, not be engaged in the world in which we live. And both of those are abuses of the doctrine. But I think on the other side, there are people who lose that perspective and therefore, again, just totally absorbed with the here and now and don't even wrestle with the fact that God has a bigger plan to which our plans need to be subordinate. Excellent point. Yeah. 
one thought. They asked Jesus, where is the kingdom? He said, it's in your midst. And does that mean the believers are people of the kingdom right now? Okay, I would tell you when Christ said the kingdom is in your midst, when Christ came in his first coming, it was a bona fide offer of the kingdom to the nation of Israel. And therefore, for that generation, if they had accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah and the Davidic king, that they would have experienced the inauguration of that which Christ had promised in the Old Testament. And yet, before the foundation of the world, Christ knew that he would be despised and forsaken, that he would be crucified, and therefore the kingdom would be postponed until his second coming. As a matter of fact, Christ places his return in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25 when he returns with all his angels. So that the kingdom is not inaugurated. It doesn't begin until Christ returns at his second coming with all of his angels and um, establishes that kingdom on earth. Excellent, excellent question. Now, in the interim, notice we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Obviously, we're not in Christ's kingdom right now. The kingdom has not been inaugurated the way it will be when Christ returns at his second coming. So now, on the one hand, we're praying that Christ would fulfill his kingdom promise. That when Christ comes back, when the kingdom is inaugurated, his will truly will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. But I think there's also a present aspect where we're saying, even though the kingdom has not been inaugurated, that I will follow his precepts, I will follow his word, I'll be submissive to his will, the same way the angels are in heaven. Now think with me, what characterizes the way things are done in heaven right now? If you could observe the throne of God and the angels who surround the throne, what are some characteristics of what happens around the throne of God? Worship. 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 What else? Adoration. Adoration. Praise. Praise. When Christ tells an angel to do something, what do you think happens? They do it immediately, completely, heartily as unto the Lord. And therefore, it's a prayer that you and I would respond the same way to that which God has asked us to do. There would be a wholehearted worship, love, adoration, and compliance so that we pray that his word may be perfectly executed through us. That as men of God, as iron sharpens iron, we want no less than perfect conformity to the will of God, even now as we live in a fallen world. And of course, Satan has his um, response. Um, I taught at the Moody Bible Institute for a while, and you don't live in downtown Chicago without hearing a lot of Sinatra. And, and uh, it was while I was in uh, a restaurant, a pizza restaurant in downtown Chicago, that I first heard Sinatra's I Did It My Way. As a matter of fact, I even asked uh, uh, Tom if we could do that for our opening, but it, we decided not to. But that sort of epitomizes the world's philosophy. You rely on yourself and you do it my way. And sadly, there's a lot of believers who have bought into that philosophy. It's all about self-autonomy. It's all about 
self-realization, and therefore we're adjusting our perspective where now it's not all about me, it's not all about doing it my way, it's about doing it his way. Okay, any questions, comments on, or insights on this particular aspect of the Lord's Prayer? Just a quick one if I may. I was stuck thoroughly in sin for a lot of my life, and the thing that really broke me free is understanding this concept. Adam and Eve, you know, Satan said, you can decide for yourselves what's right and wrong. We're off God's authority. That's autonomy. That's exactly what you're talking about. That is the sin of the garden. And I had to study through and realize humility, brokenness, these things we talk about wanting, means exactly what Jesus did in the garden where he prayed this same prayer. Exactly. Saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. You got you choose. Every time you sin, you are choosing God's will or your own will. And I had to face that starkly and realize that I was choosing my own will, my own way, my own everything so often. And I had to humble myself and choose God's will instead, just like Jesus did. He's who we are supposed to be. And that, that is one of those powerful things. Exactly. And you know what's sobering is, even as a believer, even as a mature believer, I don't know how many times I've I brought my prayer list and worked through this, and by the time I get to this one, I'm realizing, maybe I'm not going to pray this request, because this one was basically selfish and self-centered and not part of this. It's, it's a battle that we're going to fight until the day we're transformed totally into the image of Christ. Thanks for sharing. Excellent. Exactly. Flesh, the things of the flesh, stuff the spirit, the things of the spirit. It's just that whole, to me, it's the whole battle that Satan tries to get us wrapped up in and to throw off God and decide for ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes we can blatantly just choose our own will. But oftentimes it's hard to discern the difference between what's the Lord's will in the situation and what our, our own will is drawing us towards discernment of whose will we're following and the same to me to be difficult. You got it. Perfect, perfect observation. That's why we're going to prayer. That, don't miss that. If you're struggling with that, that's why we go to prayer with our Bibles open. This is the way God speaks to us and the heart of a genuine believer who is tender toward God says, I want to make the right call on this one. I want to do your will, but I'm not sure what that's going to look like in this particular situation. That's why we go to prayer. But notice how our perspective is already being molded so that when we go to prayer, we're on target to be more effective. So here's our prayer list, and already we gain perspective by our special relationship, by assurance that God's in control, whatever's on this list, God's got it covered. Ah. A sense of reverence for God, anticipation that looks forward to his return and sees the big picture in light of what God is doing, and a willingness to submit to God's rule. Now we're ready to go to the Lord with our petitions and requests. And notice there's a transition in the prayer where our Lord teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now there's an interesting structural relation in the prayer. Notice that because of our relationship and because of God's control, 
we can ask him to provide for us. As our loving Heavenly Father, who is concerned with our well-being, out of that flows a genuine desire to ask for him to provide for us. Now, I think our Lord picks bread as an example of physical needs. I think anything that is a physical need could legitimately be included. Food, shelter, clothes, job, those kinds of things, those things that are necessary for life, those things that we rely upon for our existence. And often, a good deal of our prayer time is spent along those lines. Um, but what is remarkable here is that in this prayer, we're recognizing that God is the source of all of it. How often do you or I in our prayer life go to Lord for the things we can't provide for ourselves and we figure we've got the rest of it covered? By, by requesting something this basic, we're recognizing that even the basics come from the hand of our loving God. Even the ability to work and to earn health, all are good gifts from God. And secondly, notice the schedule, our daily bread. Most people are thinking about their income and their resources so far down the road that we forget that God is interested in dealing with our needs on a day-by-day -day basis. And once in a while, you and I get a wake-up call. Most of us can remember March 2020. Within one month, the stock market dropped 25%. I was only a couple of years into my retirement, and I still remember that ache in your stomach when you realize you have 25% less than you had one month ago. And I cut it off here because no one at that point was sure how low this was going to go. And yet, in all of my anxiety, I could go to Heavenly Father, the one who is in control and who cares about my needs, and realize that when we talk about daily bread, he means it. Leave the future in his hands. Be responsible, be diligent, but don't put your trust in the stock market. Put your trust in the true and living God who will not fail to provide for his children. And you know, after praying through it, I said, I'm not going to watch the stock market except once a week. I'm going to trust the Lord, and I'm going to rely upon him to continue to provide for our family's needs. There's something therapeutic about daily bread in a world that is so focused on our material needs that it consumes our time, our attention, and our concerns. Any questions on this particular aspect of the prayer? Daily breaks be more question than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, well, everybody sees the prices going up. Even, even bread is getting more expensive these days. And yet... But not a rule that a part for the whole... You put a part, bread, for the whole thing, mortgages and everything. Exactly. Okay. That's satisfactory. Now... Pardon. The next part of the prayer flows naturally out of, remember the picture we saw where we were confronted with the fact that like Isaiah of old, I am undone, I am a sinner, I dwell in the midst of a people who are unclean. 
it is natural that we ask for pardon. Notice that sin breaks fellowship with God. Even as a believer, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our salvation in Christ is absolutely secure. But when a believer willingly violates God's word, it causes a breach in fellowship, a distance in relationship that can be restored through confession. That's what this portion of the prayer is. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that notice in this part of the prayer, we're asking for God to forgive our sins and to experience forgiveness. Now, this prayer is given prior to the cross, but obviously it is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, that provides that cleansing. And then notice the consistency. We prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that notice we are willing to pray Forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So that we're already in the process of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. If Christ could forgive our great debt, we should be serious about seeking to be forgiving people. People who are quick to pardon those who sin against us. So that notice the transforming power of the Spirit has begun to work in our lives to the point that we are now modeling the kind of attitude that our Heavenly Father models. And then the last position, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice that as we submit to his rule, we're asking for protection in this world. Now, the word translated temptation basically refers to a pressure, a difficult situation that brings a reaction. And that reaction demonstrates our character. So it's a circumstance in which our character is revealed. Its presence is part and parcel of a fallen world. Part of the reason I use the picture of Satan and the serpent is because the world is under the rule of Satan who is using pressure in the lives of the believer to get them to fail to live up to the standard, to live up to the provision that God has given us in Christ. When we say lead us not into temptation, we're asking the Lord to spare us from those circumstances. As a matter of fact, our Lord will use the exact same word in the garden when he finds his disciples sleeping and not praying, don't miss the connection, and says to them, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Now that has a twofold significance. Number one, that they be uh, excused from the entire test. Scripture is very clear. God doesn't tempt anyone. He doesn't uh, uh, solicit any believer to evil. But he does on occasion permit testing like he did the disciples in the garden. 
And that's where the second part of the prayer comes in and deliver us from evil. That we successfully weather the test if that test is indeed permitted by God. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but um, hopefully you've enjoyed our study today. One of my philosophies in teaching is I love the interaction. Thank you for those of you who shared insights, um, and I look forward to doing that in the future. Hopefully, this has challenged your prayer life in such a way that next time you pray, you will be even more effective in bringing your requests before the Lord. Thank you, and I'll look forward to seeing you guys next week.